being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 39 imperial japan part 9 spikelopedia part 3 the many identities of nisho inoue part 3 or the patriotic terrorist Today I'm recording from the entrance of the Mitsui Bank in Nihonbashi. So on October 21st, 1931, a secret society within the Imperial Japanese Army, known as the Sakurakai, or the Cherry Blossom Society, they attempted to carry out a coup. This became known as the October Incident, or the Imperial Colors Incident. This was executed by Lieutenant Colonel Kingoro Hashimoto, though also with assistance and support from Shumei Okawa, who we mentioned last episode. There were many factors at play with this. The main one, though, was the desire to, quote, prevent the government from squandering the fruits of our victory in Manchuria, as they perceived that the control faction was insufficiently supportive of Japanese ambitions in Manchuria. Were this coup successful, the Imperial Way faction would have taken power. They had plans ready to go to ban all political parties and to push to, like, more aggressively control Manchuria. They would have taken steps towards that Showa restoration that we talked about, which would have been closer rule under the Emperor. The coup was betrayed by the younger officers involved in the plot, and the Kempeitai arrested the plotters, though the consequences for all, for most people involved were not very harsh. Hashimoto, the ringleader, was put on house arrest, and most of the army officers involved were just transferred around and away from each other. The light hand was probably required to maintain control of the army, and... Over the following years, the Imperial Way faction was successfully recycled into the control faction's power structure. Choosing to dole out light punishment was probably the only thing they could have done. But, at the same time, light punishment did not disincentivize future incidents. And oh, how there would be future incidents. If there's one thing that Imperial Japan loved to do, it was to stage and plan incidents. In February 1932, there was another incident, the Ketsumedan Jiken, which has been translated in various ways. I'm partial to the translation that calls it the Blood Oath Corps incident, but I've also seen it called the League of Blood incident or the Blood Pledge Corps incident. And this time, Inoue was the ringleader. Now this all goes back to when Inoue was running an unsanctioned shrine associated with a historical site of Nichiren, who was the Zen Buddhist priest from centuries ago. Basically, we're picking up from where we left Inoue off, right? Inoue was running this unsanctioned site as a, quote, patriotic training temple. In one of the greatest quotes I've ever seen, they described this as, quote, Initially, it was supposed to be all legal. <laughs> Which, I mean, oh, the best intentions. We meant for this to be legal. <laughs> As a side note, to get into the patriotic training temple, you had to go through a grueling and dangerous seven-day fast, which apparently weeded out, like, most of the applicants. 
you know, it also carried out more faith healings when he was at this patriotic training temple. Now, while running this temple, Inoue was in talks with a naval lieutenant named Hitoshi Fuji. Fuji and Inoue believed that things were so bad in Japan that normal political activity could not work. They believed that financial elites with their interlocking corporate conglomerates, the Zaibatsu, had seized both political parties, the Rikinseikai, or which is translated as the Friends of Constitutional Government, and the Riken Minseto, or the Constitutional Democratic Party. Notice that I haven't mentioned them before because they're not actually that important for understanding Japan at the time. I mean, obviously they were the two biggest parties, but like, they were both fake paper parties, right? That didn't really reflect anything but the institutional backers, right? Inoue was backed by General Sadao Araki, who, interestingly, also backed Shiro Ishii of Unit 731, who we will definitely get to in the future. The Friends of Constitutional Government Party was dominated specifically by the Mitsui Zaibatsu, while the Riken Minseito was dominated by the Mitsubishi Zaibatsu. Yes, that Mitsubishi. According to Fuji and Inoue, the Zaibatsu ran everything, and they were ruining the middle classes, squeezing the farmers, and taking all of the nation's wealth for themselves. This, in turn, made the country vulnerable to socialism and communism. Now, I might not necessarily agree with Fuji and Inoue's solution to the problem, but I would argue that their analysis seemed pretty accurate. The Zaibatsu were, in fact, sucking up all of the profits at the expense of the farmers and the middle classes, both of whom suffered from high unemployment. This was during the Great Depression, right? It's important to keep that in mind. And everyone, or many people in the country, were suffering from poverty and also high taxes. So, to get this plan moving, the Blood Oath Corps incident, Inoue left the shrine that he was running in October 1930. And he moved in to an organization called the Greater Japan Justice Organization. Which, by now, you should have a sense for what these organizations' favorite activities were. That's right, petty crime, strike-breaking, and this organization in particular worked for some of the smaller Zaibatsu. While Inoue was living there, he met with Imperial military officers from Fukuoka, which, remember how we talked about how that was the hotbed for anti-government right-wing extremism in Japan, right? Officers that met with Inoue ended up carrying out the later February 26th incident, which more on that in the future. The significance of Inoue meeting with them is to show that Inoue was not like some sort of lone wolf or cult leader. He was well-connected, and he knew just about everyone in this milieu, everyone who provoked incidents before and after him. Inoue then moved in with a Shinto scholar with far-right ties. They would argue about Shintoism and Zen Buddhism, because, of course, Inoue was very much in the Zen Buddhist camp, but Inoue would say that this Shinto scholar gave him a much greater appreciation for Shinto. After this, Inoue then met with Mitsugi Nishida. Now, I did not mention Nishida when I was talking about the Manchurian incident in episode 31, but he was the ringleader, I guess you could say. Here's the thing 
that is crazy to me. As of when Inoue met with him, the Manchurian incident had not yet happened. So, actually, Inoue and Nishida were discussing their respective plots, and they were attempting to coordinate them for maximum impact. The ideal was to have them happen at the same time. The theory was that if they could force the Emperor's hand in Manchuria and in Japan at the same time, the Imperial Way faction could do a soft coup. I mean, we could argue about the definition of how soft that would be, but then, you know, they could basically force the Showa restoration that we've talked about. Nishida and Inoue met through Ikikita, who was arguably the key theorist for Japanese ultranationalism. Like, it's either him or Shumei Okawa, right? The, probably Kita has a better claim on it. Kita wanted to end the Zaibatsu's inordinate influence and return to rule directly by the emperor. And like, usually when fascists say that, they usually mean they just want to kill socialists. But it seems like Kita and his group were actually serious about ending Zaibatsu rule. Now, Nishida and Inoue were not able to get their incidents to coincide, but the fact that they were trying to do that is remarkable in itself. So Inoue came up with a plan to kill 20 politicians and business leaders, like top business leaders, in an attempt to force the Showa restoration. It's important to note that the men on the hit list were not like Reds or Socialists, or even Pinkos, Many of them were not even liberal, in the normative sense. They were simply part of the control faction, which meant that they were strongly connected with the financial oligarchy that stood in between the emperor and his people, as these ultras saw it. This is not unlike a lot of the Russian proto-fascist conservatives prior to the Bolshevik Revolution. Not to get sidetracked, but there are very tangible historical reasons why that is the case that I think we will get into in the future. Both the far right and the far left in Japan were heavily influenced by the Russian situation. Now, in order to carry out this hit list, Inoue came up with the idea of Ichinin Isatsu, which is to say, one man, one kill. This concept relied on the idea that if one person was completely focused on killing just one person, then they could achieve their goals. I think the way it worked is that they gave each of the would-be assassins like two or three people to kill, but the goal was to just take out one. And you had like a backup in case, you know, he was not to be found or whatever. And most of the recruits from this mission came from the aforementioned patriotic training temple that Inoue was running. Side note, dear listeners, if you are listening to my show and you happen to be staying at a patriotic training temple, then you should run. You are being set up as a patsy or a button man. Now, shortly before the big day, Inoue gathered his assassins and he handed them Browning automatic pistols. He reminded them, one man, one kill. Supposedly, they all took a blood oath, hence the name, right? The Blood Oath Corps incident. So on February 9th, Inoue's recruit, Shono Onuma, shot and killed Junosuke Inoue, who was a businessman and central banker while he was at a public speaking event. 
Junosuke Inoue was the governor for the Central Bank of Japan. Now, Junosuke Inoue was not just any central banker either. He had intentionally adopted deflationary policies which had caused or exacerbated the depression in Japan. He was highly unpopular with the general public. The Warhawks and the military also hated him because he opposed imperial wars abroad. Now, when this Inoue was killed, nobody knew that it was anything but just an isolated incident, right? Like, there had been a number of political assassinations, you know, before and after this. So, like, they were like, okay, is this just a one-off thing? Then, on March 5th, Goro Hishinuma shot and killed Don Takuma outside the Mitsui Bank in Nihonbashi. Takuma was the head of the Mitsui Zaibatsu. Takuma was a very interesting guy as well, because, among other things, he had actually attended MIT, like, way back in the day. He had held many different executive positions, he had ties to international finance, and he was therefore a target for ultranationalists. Stop me if the similarities to the organization consul in Germany killing Walter Rathenau sounds a little too similar. After this assassination, the police started to realize that these assassinations were connected. Notice that we've only mentioned two killings, not twenty. Ten would-be assassins were recruited, and eight failed or did not attempt their kills. On March 11th, Inoue turned himself in to the police in Tokyo, probably after some back channels told him to do so. On May 15th, Japanese naval officials associated with the League of Blood assassinated the Prime Minister of Japan, Inukai Tsuyoshi. Now, arguably, you can kind of loop this in as a League of Blood incident, though technically it was a separate group, not run or controlled by Inoue. By the way, the Blood Oath Corps incident was the inspiration for the Yukio Mishima novel, Runaway Horses. And I suppose you could also say it was an inspiration for his own death. Now, one of the weirder quirks of the whole affair is that while the Blood Oath Corps had a deadly serious list of top politicians and businessmen to kill. They also wanted to kill Charlie Chaplin, who was on an official goodwill visit to Japan at the time. Their dream was to kill the Prime Minister and Charlie Chaplin at the same time while they were meeting together. But it didn't work out that way. At the trial that later happened, which we'll get to in a second, one of the conspirators said, Charlie Chaplin is a popular figure in the United States and the darling of the capitalist class. We believed that killing him would cause a war with America, and thus we could kill two birds with one stone. Which, I mean, as collateral damage, sure, but I don't know if that would have provoked war with the United States. Imagine if that was the end of the Charlie Chaplin career, though. Like, holy cow. Separate from this, and not to give too much away, but Charlie Chaplin was a very interesting guy. He was not entirely what he seemed, and <laughs> I don't know if it would be worth it or not, but a Charlie Chaplin episode would be pretty interesting. We'll see if it ever happens. Now, all of the co-conspirators in Inoue were arrested, right? And then they had a high-profile trial, but to call the trial 
high profile would be like a huge understatement. If it weren't for maybe like the war crimes tribunal that would occur not that long after, this would probably have been maybe the maybe one of the biggest trials in Japanese history. It's certainly up there at least. And Japanese media turned it into a massive media event. And they gave Inoue, they being the court and the press, gave Inoue and his killers the chance to make their ultra-nationalist case to Japan. And many in the public came to sympathize with them. I would argue that this was not exactly an accident. During the trial, Inoue talked about his motivations, saying, I was primarily guided by Buddhist thought in what I did. Since, in a certain sense, Inoue's ideas were on trial too, I guess the logic was he was allowed to explain himself. And the prosecutor asked, if there weren't more humane ways of bringing about social revolution than assassination. Inoue explained, saying, In explaining why assassination was the most appropriate method to employ, I would first point out that the upper classes have status, fame, wealth and power, and want for nothing. Although they believe that no one is in a position to challenge them, they are nevertheless confronted by one thing, death. Death is the only thing they have no control over. Therefore, it is the only way to bring them to their knees. Apart from this method, we thought there was no other way to save either them or the nation. We believed it was necessary to assassinate two or three members from each of the privileged classes, that is, the representatives of the Zaibatsu, politicians, and military cliques, for a total of some twenty in all. Thereafter, we anticipated that out of their own self-interest, the remaining members of these groups would come together to form an alliance to placate those seeking change, listening to the voices of the whole nation. Of course, if this method were to be successful, it would at first be necessary to take the form of a union between the imperial court and the military. Then in a second and third stage, it would be possible for the reformist forces gradually accruing political power to use legal means to complete the transformation of society. Secondly, this method was the most appropriate because it required, whether successful or not, the least number of victims. That said, there is no question the 20 or so band members dedicated to the reformation of society would die in the process, either at the hands of the police when they killed their victims or later after they were arrested. That is to say, on the surface it would appear that they had failed, but at the same time it would have a major impact. Additionally, this small number of comrades would serve by virtue of having climbed the hangman scaffold as a beacon for the army of reformation, the comrades' lifeblood stimulating the self-sacrificing conscience of each branch of the right wing. In time, the branches of the right wing would unite together, hastening the unity of both the civilian and military members of the Reformation Army, and spurring them to act. The critical issue is that there was no better method than implementing what I felt was best for the country, untainted by the least self-interest. My words here now. This makes me think of several things. First of all, these are not the words of a religious maniac though some people have depicted Inoue as just that. Second, this is not exactly an insane plan. Like, it is in like the colloquial sense, but it's not literally insane, right? Like, 
it makes a lot of sense. Like, he has a realistic understanding that, like, he and his group would be sacrificed, and then the legal forces of reform would pass the reforms. In some ways, it's kind of a sophisticated or realistic understanding of the situation. And it makes even more sense if you ask yourself, who benefits from trimming the Zaibatsu's power? Like, who other than the masses, right? Finally, does this extended quote about Inoue's motivations not also kind of remind you of the Boogaloo Boys? You remember that fake thing that <laughs> they trotted out that didn't really take hold? It does make you think, doesn't it? Now, the judge asked Inoue how he viewed himself. Inoue said, I live in revolution. I'm a revolutionary. However, I'm not talking about whether, the, whether or not the revolution is successful. This is my entire life, my everything. That's the feeling I had. From the beginning, I lived in Zen. Therefore, I felt I was disciplining myself for the sake of the reform movement. That's all. And during his concluding testimony, Inoue recited a poem that he wrote, which I will now recite. I am not trained in reciting poetry, but I'll give it my best shot. <clears throat> Dew taken up in the palm of the hand fades away in the summer morning. Now when Yoshitaka Yotsumoto, who was another conspirator on trial, when he was on the stand, the judge asked him why they thought that assassinating a few people would have such an impact. And Yotsumoto said, we felt we had no choice but to create something new by destroying Japan as it presently exists. Yet we never believed that with our small numbers we could successfully destroy the powerful existing structure of the state with one blow. Nevertheless, we could throw a stone that would lead to a better nation. If Japan is eternal, then something new will be born. I believed we would be able to punch a hole in the large dike. Another part of the trial involved calling upon a Zen Buddhist priest in order to contextualize Inoue's actions within Zen Buddhism. They called upon the Zen master Genpo Yamamoto, who was a key figure in Rinzai Zen Buddhism. They called Yamamoto for his expertise, but also because Inoue had actually discussed his plans with Yamamoto. Now, I'm no big city lawyer, but some people might call that being a co-conspirator, or accomplice, or something along those lines. But who am I to say, right? Either way, Genpo Yamamoto claimed, I am the only one who understands Inoue's state of mind. In his testimony, like, he went on for quite a bit, but he also said this, It is true that if motivated by an evil mind, someone should kill so much as a single ant. As many as 136 hells await that person. This holds true not only in Japan, but in all the countries of the world. Yet the Buddha, being absolute, has stated that when there are those who destroy social harmony and injure the polity of the nation, then even if they are called good men, killing them is not a crime. Unquote. Now, I'm not a Zen Buddhist but Brian Dyson Victoria is, and a priest, no less, and he said that this testimony can be pointed to 
as one of the low points in Zen Buddhist history, morally speaking. In 1934, Inoue and his two killers were sentenced to life in prison. Everyone else on trial, which is to say those involved who hadn't killed anyone, received 3 to 15 years depending, which counted as extremely light sentences by Japanese standards of the time. This and the October incident, also getting pretty light sentences, pretty much all but guaranteed future attacks. Now let's talk about the effects of the Blood Oath Corps incident. If we judge them according to their stated goals of igniting social revolution leading to an eventual Showa restoration, which is to say direct rule by the emperor, then they failed. Like, 100%, right? They wanted to provoke martial law. There was no martial law. They wanted to provoke widespread social reform. They didn't get that. They didn't get direct rule by military government. None of their goals were achieved. But, but, this incident did in fact end Taisho democracy, which is to say the period of fundamentally democratic rule that Japan experienced from around 1912 to arguably around this incident. The thing about the Blood Oath Corps incident is that it did provoke the emperor to appoint more cabinet members and to take away budgetary power from the national diet. And when a parliamentary body loses the power of the purse, so to speak, then it loses most of its power. And so it was for Japanese democracy. And what are we to make of Inoue's crimes? He organized the murders of a central banker and the head of a zaibatsu. And he ends up serving six years for it. It does make you wonder who he was serving to get such a light treatment. And of course, Inoue was following orders his entire career. Who was directing him? All of this begs the question, who is more powerful than the central banks and the zaibatsu in Imperial Japan? Kui Bono. Who benefits? More on that next episode. For sources today, of course, I used the Brian Dyson books, as well as Kodama's memoir, as well as all the books I've mentioned up to this point, and a few more books that I will cite later. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. Check me out on Patreon, where I do more one-off episodes for the most part. They're really good. Check them out. Sometimes I unlock them, so you can get a little taste, but uh, yeah, just subscribe. It's great. Now, I need to be on my way. I'm heading to the outer grounds of the Imperial Palace. See you next episode, and God bless.
Oh,